Well, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Matt Nickerson, and uh, in case you don't remember me, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. For those of you who don't know, you're visiting. I've been out of town for the last couple of weeks, and it was fantastic. I was originally supposed to go to Barcelona with my dad, and my mom was really anxious about terrorist attacks, so we canceled that, and we just went, my family, we took me up and spent 12 days or so with my parents up in Northeast Ohio. We got to watch my Cleveland Cavaliers finally bring a championship to Cleveland, Ohio. Ten other sad people like myself finally had their uh, depression removed. Uh, in all seriousness, it is great to be here with you. Uh, I have not had a chance to listen to Alan or Todd Allen's sermon, and, uh, but I have heard great things, getting emails and Facebook messages of people just saying thank you. They were a blessing. They were challenged. And I really pray that they were. And we're in this series. Here's where the series came from. We're kind of wrapping up this week and next week, and we're almost done. I'm getting great feedback, but here's where this comes, came from. So I made my wife a Christmas present, and I'm not a carpenter, I'm a pastor, and there's a good reason. So I had built my wife this thing. It was going to be for all her crafts and card cataloging and all this stuff, and it was going to have drawers, and I'm just, I was so pumped. But I was using all scrap wood to do it, because nothing says love like scrap wood. And... Uh, I finally put the whole thing together and I came down to, you know, I built her these drawers and I had like a shelf for the drawer to rest on and it was really hard to get it level. And when I put the drawer in, it went in, but it didn't come out. And so I thought the problem was that I didn't put in these things for the drawers to rest on, rest on quite right. So I took them out, put it back in, took them out, put it back in, tried cutting them and changing them and doing all these different things and it wasn't working, it wasn't working. And here's what I learned in that process and here's where this is relevant for today. If you misdiagnose the problem, then you will never find the right solution. And so what happened is I finally looked back after multiple attempts of putting it in and pulling it out, it wasn't working and all these things were going wrong. And I looked back and I kind of had to have, you know, that there's this outside wall and then there's this inside wall for the drawers. And I look and the inside wall has a lump in it where I'm putting the drawer in. Literally, I'm forcing the drawer in and it's pushing the wood out so far. But I was diagnosing the problem as whether it was level or not. I could have worked on that for months. It would never have changed the scenario. And as a pastor for 17 years, I have learned that your life and my life is the same way. People will reach out to me in email or whatever, say, Pastor, can we meet? I need you to fix my life. And they'll come into my office and we'll start talking and they'll say, here's the problem. My spouse, fill in the blank. No, don't fill in the blank. I don't mean that literally. I mean, and here's the thing. The problem is rarely, rarely with someone else. Not never, rarely. It's not that they don't have a part in this. It's that the problem is more often than not in you. Jesus actually tells a story like this, and I want you to see this in Luke chapter 12, but let me set this up, because kind of the irony of the situation is what makes this story so powerful. So Jesus is on this rant. He's just been accused by the Pharisees of healing and doing miracles in the power of Beelzebub, which is, uh, in case you never heard it, you learned it from that Queen song way back in the day. day. Remember, I see a soul with the world, man. Okay, forget it. You didn't even know it said Beelzebub in the song, did you? You're like, I don't know what it says. It just Jam of the music. So Beelzebub was a false demon uh, who masqueraded as a god and actually appears throughout history in different cultures of the world is a different name in each, uh, in each culture. It's amazing. And they're accusing Jesus of performing miracles in that name. He just goes off. I mean, goes off on the Pharisees. Gives them these woes, which are these warnings to them and, and how evil they are. And, and in the middle of this, so there's a crowd. He's rebuking the Pharisees. He's offended them. They've offended him. He's offending them with the truth. They're calling him names. 
And then he's teaching the disciples. And there's this one guy in the middle of all this, and he's not paying attention. And here's that conversation. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then Jesus called, sorry, then someone called from the crowd. Teacher, that's Jesus he's talking to. Would you please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me? Now, I realize we didn't read you the whole text, but at least what I gave you ought to tell you, this question is out of context. This isn't the right time or the right place. It might be the right question. So what's going on here? According to this, it would look like this guy's dad just passed away, and he is having conflict with his brother. Anybody in here have a sibling they've had conflict with? Okay, if you have a sibling, you've had conflict at some point. And apparently, it's causing a major problem, so much so that this guy shows up not to see Jesus perform miracles, not to hear truth from heaven, not to see how he goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. This guy shows up because he wants Jesus to do something for him. And then he finally gets a break in the moment. Maybe Jesus took a breath. Maybe Jesus turned around. Whatever it was, can you imagine this dude just yelling out? I mean, the Bible tells us there are usually hundreds, sometimes thousands of people around. This guy yells out, hey, teacher. So what does that tell you? This guy is really bothered. He's really irritated. And we don't have any more of the story. Maybe we could go back and find out that he's mad because his brother was the golden child. That's bothered my sister her whole life. <laughs> and I wish I was joking. My mom, who sometimes watches my sermon, she'll be sitting there going, uh-huh. Maybe way back in the past, bro messed him over, you know, and he's still stewing about it. So now here's his chance, and his brother. Now, usually back in those cultures, usually the oldest had the bigger portion of the inheritance. Maybe that's going on here too. Maybe his brother is really, really messing him over. I mean, he could be totally legitimized in his frustrations. And so he cries out to Jesus, help. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus replied, friend, now I love that. He doesn't say, hey, moron, have you not been paying attention? That's probably what I would say because I'm not quite as patient as Jesus. Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Now, do you find that to be an interesting question? Uh, you're Jesus. Aren't you the judge over everything? I mean, if I'm Peter and I'm sitting there, I'm going, okay, you confuse me now. Because I thought like these are the kinds of things we were supposed to bring to you, Jesus. I thought these were the kind of things we're supposed to be dealing with. You see, what Jesus is about to show you is that the problem isn't the problem. The problem is so much deeper. It's so much more profound than that. In fact, Jesus says this. He goes on. He says, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. The guy might raise his hand and go, does that mean you're not going to help? But Jesus did help. Jesus just gave him the answer. The problem isn't with your dad's estate. The problem isn't your dad didn't leave enough money for the both of you. The problem isn't that your brother's trying to hose you over. The problem is you got a greed problem. This is where most people would go, that's not fair. We're not here to talk about me, Jesus. That's not what I asked you to do here. And Jesus goes, no, but you don't understand. See, friend, I care about you. Now, I don't know about any of you. This analogy is going to go really obvious really fast. So, 
there's no way for me to like set it up and then give, pull out that left hook at the end. It's just gonna be obvious. But I remember when I was a teenager, one summer, my mom came to me. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you to pull the weeds. And I did. And then she said, and I'll pay you X amount of dollars if you just keep them pulled all summer long. So I don't wherever my mom was at work or whatever that day, I remember I went out and it seemed like a billion dollars she gave me. It was probably like 25 bucks or whatever, 75 bucks, I don't know. And I remember I went out and I pulled the weeds, but nobody told me how to pull the weeds. So what did I do? I went around and I just yanked the weeds. Now, it was only a few days later, all of a sudden those puppies are growing all back again. And I was so mad. Oh, I was so mad. Because now I'm like, this is never going to end. I'm not, I, at first, I was getting paid what I thought was good money. I'd pull them, we'd be done. I'd like pull them one more time, maybe that summer. Now I'm looking at my money and going, I'm going to be making like $5 every 10 hours. This is not going to go well for me. And my mom said, well, how did you pull the weeds? I said, what? I got mad. What do you mean, how did I pull the weeds? I went over, I grabbed the weed, I pulled it. She goes, show me. Now I'm embarrassed, right? Shame has kicked in. Let me show you. And I yank the weed, and the top comes off. She goes, well, you're never going to pull the weed that way. What do you mean? I'm not, I just pull the weed. No, no, no. All you did is pull off the top layer. Everybody knows this, right? If you don't dig out the root, the weed just what? Comes right back. So here's, I mean, the, the whole bottom line. You could walk out and get all your money's worth for today. In your life. There are things that are planted deep in your hearts, and some of them are just flat evil, and some of them are actually good, really good, maybe even God-honoring kind of good. And if you don't deal with it the right way, what will happen is that thing will take hold in your life, and layer by layer, starting with a seed, it'll grow. And as it grows, one day it'll become full-born, and then what will happen? You'll have a life full of weeds. So I often meet with people. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but you may not have been here or you may have forgotten and didn't think it was important. I often have people come in my office, and again, it's they're doing this or they're doing that and fix us, pastor. And here's normally, normally what I have to do. Let's slow down for a minute. I can't fix anybody. Last time I checked, I didn't die on any crosses, and I certainly didn't raise them in the dead. I can't fix anybody, I can't heal anybody, I can't put it all back together. What I can do is point you to the one who can. His name is Jesus. What I can do is teach you the gospel, I can teach you about the grace and mercy and the truth of God, and we can start to let that work out, not in their life, but in your life. The problem here is not that you're fighting with your sibling, it's not that you're fighting with your spouse, it's not that you're fighting with your neighbor, your parents, your kids, your boss, that's not the problem. The problem is you have an unhealthy root in your heart. And I know you may be thinking, but you don't know, pastor. You don't know. I'm like, you're right. I probably don't know. But I know what the Bible tells me. And it tells me that over and over and over again, when I think my other person I got conflict with has a tree in their eye, the reality is the tree is in my eye and all they've got is a, is a piece of sawdust. That's what the Bible reveals. So if I want to get rid of the roots in my life, I got to pull it out, Right? If I'm going to get rid of the weeds, I said that wrong, i got to pull out the root. If I want sin to go away in my life, then what do I have to do? I have to crucify the desire, the desire. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let me show this to you in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you'll open it. If you have our app, it'll be in there. Otherwise, we'll show it to you on the screen. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war? Where? Within them. It's not what James said, is it? Doesn't it actually come from what's in you? You want what you 
don't have. So you scheme and you kill to get it. Now let's just kind of camp out there for just a minute before we go on. Scheming and killing, it seems a bit extreme. The book of James was written to a group of Christians who are part of what we would call the Christian diaspora. That's just a Greek word that means the dispersion. So what happens is the gospel starts in Jerusalem, it's starting to spread, many people are coming to faith, but the world around it, the Jews and the Romans do not want this, and so they increase the persecution on Christians, and the Christians, many of them scatter or disperse to other countries. And James writes this book to the 12 tribes, to the Christians who are scattered now. Now, what would happen in that day is they would write a letter, Paul or James or Peter, whoever, they would write a letter to a specific group of people, but usually those people were spread out, meeting in homes, and so they would take the letter and they would copy it and they would give it to one of the other gatherings or churches, and then they would do it again and do it again. So James writes this to the various Christians who are scattered throughout, but what's happening in that day is there's so much backbiting and devouring and fighting inside the churches that it's starting to hinder the gospel. Thank God we don't live in one of those kinds of churches. Now, this is true for all believers in all times because I am guilty. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I struggle. Hey, thank you. I struggle sometimes with this. Sometimes it eats me up. And if it does me, I'm just assuming it might also you. Look at what James says next. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, this whole scheming, killing, fighting, waging war, it's a bit extreme, right, James? James isn't literally saying they pulled out knives and stabbed each other after communion that day. What James is saying is the way you treat each other is accomplishing the same thing. The way it's playing out in their story, the rich are treating the poor with contempt. And the people in the middle, maybe the middle class, are giving deference to the rich. And they're shunning the poor and treating the poor as if they're not important. And James rebukes them and says, how dare you? Some of them have become lazy in their faith. They're saying, well, I'm saved by grace through faith. And James says, big deal. What is being saved by grace through faith if you don't do anything with it? In fact, faith that thou works is dead. And so he goes on to rebuke them. He says, you are literally Biting, devouring, destroying, cutting each other down, dishonoring each other, dishonoring the name of Christ, and the effect of it is war and death and killing. And the importance of that, guys, understand this. To some extent, this is what we call hyperbole. To some extent, James is trying to help you and me see the real effect, the real effect of desires gone awry. The real effect of desire in your heart Going the wrong way is it will kill you. It'll kill your family. It'll kill your friends. It'll kill your life group. It'll kill your church. Look at the rest of what James says. You do not have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. 
I love this quote, and, and, and a lot of these points I'm sharing with you today come from this article from Peacemakers Ministries. I've actually referenced this article before. It's called The Heart of Conflict. It's so good, so good. Google Peacemakers, two different words, Peacemakers Ministries, and just go to their website and look for this article. Again, you'll find a lot of this in there. I just want to give credit where credit is due, but I love this quote. It says this, this passage here in James describes the root cause of destructive conflict. Conflicts arise from unmet desires in our hearts. When we feel we cannot be satisfied unless we have something we want or think we need, the desire turns into a demand. If someone fails to meet that desire, we condemn him in our heart and quarrel and fight to get our way. In short, conflict arises when desires grow into demands and we judge and punish those who get in our way. Does that sound like your spouse or what? Okay, so some of you saw the irony. Let me just, I want to be really, really practical. I don't want to be theoretical. I don't help anybody if I just talk theories. What I want to do is I want to talk to you about the process, the process by where something takes root in our lives. I want to talk about how it happens. And as I'm talking about this, I want the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, reveal to you what's going on in your heart right now. Now, here's what I know, okay? Two things. Number one, men, you're going to hate this. Because we're going to start to look inward in men by nature. We don't like to do it, and if we do, we don't tell anybody about it. I once heard a Christian counselor say the problem with counseling men is that unless you give the specific illustration that fits them, they assume you're talking to somebody else. And every wife in the room, keep your elbows to yourselves. The other thing that I know, what I'm about to do is going to get extremely personal and extremely vulnerable, and it's going to have the potential to make you feel uncomfortable. And if you feel uncomfortable, you might have the potential to tune me out or to assume I'm talking about someone else. I had a, a, a student when I was a youth minister, and he came to me, and he was really struggling. He was full-on addicted to uh, fantasy and pornography and everything that goes with it. And uh, he came to me, and I handed him a book, and I said, look, I want you to go read this much. We'll come back in a week or two. We'll talk, okay? And I went away, and I said, all right, how, how did it go? What did God say to you? And he said, I only read the first chapter. I said, all right, this isn't going to work if you don't do the work. And he said, I couldn't. It was too painful. I said, well, that's the reason I gave it to you. And what happened is as he was reading, it began to expose his heart. And he didn't like what he saw, and so he just put up a wall that said, I can't go there. And I get it. What I'm about to do is to walk some of you into the deep, deep parts of your own heart. And you're going to find pain there. You're going to find hurt there. You're going to find uh, unmet needs there, some of which are going to be totally legitimate and others are going to be totally illegitimate. And you're going to want everything in you to put up a wall and say, I, 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 it's not fair. I can't go there. It hurts too much. And so what I want to do is I just want to stop literally in the middle of my message and just pray for the Holy Spirit to pierce through that wall you're building. And maybe for the first time in your life, convict you in a way that's helpful. Let's pray. Father, God, you tell us the Holy Spirit, his job in this world is to convict us of sin, to bring about righteousness in our lives, to help us to be our friend, to be our counselor. So God, I pray right now, the Holy Spirit, would he move in this place? God, reveal to us what's going on really in our hearts. God, as you reveal what's really going on in our hearts, would you heal it in the grace and the mercy of the cross? And then would you help us to walk in your ways?
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the process, the progression of sinful desires that take root in your lives. Step one, <clears throat> I'm just going to go through the steps and walk back through them. Step one, I desire. Step two, I demand. Step three, I judge. Step four, I punish. So I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. Now let's go back through those real quick. I desire, I desire, step one. So there are two different kinds of desire. There's good desire and there's bad desires. If you go back to that James 4 text I read for you already and it talks about evil desires or at the end of that same passage that we read, it talks about pleasures. If you had your Bible open or your app open, those are actually the same word in the Greek and it's the word hedonon. It's where we get our word hedonism. Now danger here, don't read English words and interpret Greek through them. Usually we get our English words, we took something in the Greek and we translated over and then we have a diff- sometimes a different word. It means something similar, but you got to be careful there. In this case, they mean a lot the same. But what the word there, hedonon, means literally is a pleasure. It's a worldly pleasure and it has taken over your life and you are now living for it. Basically, the root definition of hedonism. You are living for it. That's why in the English translation here in the New Living Translation, we see the concept of evil desire. But here's the reality. Yes, there are evil desires. Greed would be an evil desire. Lust would be an evil desire. However, there are such things as good desires. And a good desire down in your heart that goes unmet can still become a sinful habit in your life. So where we find a danger, and I'm going to walk you through this, where we find a danger is we justify our desire as godly or biblical and therefore justified. And if we're not careful, these desires will become what we call functional gods in our lives. They're not big G God. They're not the God. There's only one God. But they become the thing that we bow down to, the thing that we trust, the thing that we live for, the thing we give our energy, time, money, thoughts, four and two, because they relieve us at least temporarily. They give us pleasure and joy temporarily, and they may be good, but they're not God. And so what happens if I have a desire, evil or good, that goes unmet? That desire turns into a demand, a demand. And sometimes we're patient. We can make it days, hours, weeks, months, sometimes even years. But sometimes we break and we get to the point where we say, that's it. I can't take it anymore. And when we start to demand, we start to say things like this. Now, men, if I don't use the phrase that fits you exactly, you are not off the hook. So look beyond the phrases I'm about to use and maybe find the one that fits you, okay? You might say something like this. I work hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet when I come home? Okay? How about this one? I work two jobs to put you through school. I deserve your respect and appreciation. Man, I'm so guilty of that one. I didn't work two jobs to put my kids through school. But last week, we were on vacation, went up, saw Grammy and Papa, I told you that, and uh, they spoiled my kids. It was fantastic because they paid for everything. But here we'd take my kids to water parks and we'd go play and I'd just spend a ton of time with my boys and then we'd get to the evenings and they were tired, worn out and they'd be fighting. And seriously, you, find, you know what I found myself saying? First, at first I was paying, boys, okay, boys, calm down. Okay, boys, we, boys, you're in time out, boys. And after that, I'm like, sit down, you be quiet. Don't you realize all day long for three days all I've done for you? And then I'm going, oh man. Is it bad to want my kids to get along? No, it's God honoring. Is it bad to want my kids to appreciate 
All the things that I've done to bless them? No, of course not. God wants us to appreciate him for the things that he's done for us. Is it sinful for me to yell at them and demand because of what I did, they better? It's getting there if it's not there already. Why? Because I didn't do it so they would be good to each other. I did it because I'm a good daddy and I love them. But now I'm demanding because I want peace and quiet. I'm on vacation. Some of you are like, it's getting too personal. All right, here's another one. I spend hours managing the family budget. Therefore, I really need a new computer, iPhone, Samsung Galaxy, iPad, fill in the blank. I work like crazy for this family. I drive everywhere. I ought to have, I need a nice car to get from here to there. Pastor, do you have to go there? Some of you are like, can I text in the one you need to say right now? All right, here we go. The Bible says we should save up to cover unexpected problems. We need to tighten our budget so we can put more into savings. God has given me a gift for developing new businesses. He calls me to work hard to support our family. I deserve to have more of your support. Scripture says a husband and a wife should be completely united in love. I need to have more intimacy with you. How about take the same one? Scripture says a husband and wife should be completely united in love. I need to have more honest, heartfelt, loving communication with you. How about this one? I only want what God commands. Children who've learned to respect their parents and use their God-given gifts to the fullest. I'm only trying to do what's best for you and honor God. Are these bad desires? Probably not at the root. It probably started deep down as a seed, maybe as something good. But if it goes unfulfilled, unmet, what starts to happen is we start to justify, we start to rationalize, and then what happens is we begin to step into the role of judge. And we start to question the other person, don't we? We start to question their motives. We start to question their thinking. We start to question their salvation. I'm not so sure they're saved. Nobody saved would ever do that. I think they've walked away from God, completely hardened their heart against him. And we move from desire to demand to judge. And the Bible's clear on judging. Jesus covers this one in the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful to judge. Because the same way you judge other people, you will be judged. Jesus says it in other ways, in different contexts, different words. The degree to which you choose to forgive someone else, I'll forgive you. You want to be fully forgiven by God? Fully forgive others. Oh, you only going to give 20% forgiveness? Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a terrifying phrase from Jesus. You're like, that's salvation by works. No, that's understanding the heart of God, and he has completely erased your sins. And so he's asking you to completely erase the sins of others. Not kind of erase them, or maybe erase them, or if they jump through the right hoop, erase them, but to erase them. And what happens, what happens is I get down into that place. That root leads me to become the judge of them. Now, I want to stop here for a second because I need to clarify judging for a minute. There's actually a text in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. You can go read it for yourself. There's a sin in the church in Corinth, and the sin is so bad that even the outside world looks at it. What's happening is a man is having intimate relationships, relationship with his dad's wife, probably not his mom, 
probably his stepmom. And the church is celebrating it. They're going, isn't Grace amazing? I mean, isn't Grace great? I mean, look, this guy can do this. God still loves him. He's a part of the church. Go, Grace. And Paul's like, are you crazy? Even the world looks at you and thinks you guys are a bunch of pagans. They think this religion's all messed up. You should be judging this man's sin. And everybody goes, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus tell us not to judge? Well, Paul goes on to clarify. Go read it for yourself. I believe it's 1 Corinthians 5. You'll find it in 6. It kind of bleeds over in one conversation. And Paul clarifies in there. He says, look, we are not to judge the outside world. Non-believers, those of you in the room, you don't know Jesus. You don't have to play by our rules because you didn't sign on. You didn't agree to this. You haven't accepted the love and the mercy of God. But when we go all in with Jesus, there is a moral code of conduct, if you will, something that we say, I didn't just become saved. I became saved for something. And so when you came to Jesus, you said, I need your grace. I need your mercy. And so Paul says, we don't judge the outside world. They're just doing what the world does. But believers, now use the word judge here more in the context of evaluation. But I am to look at other believers and evaluate their lives. Not so I can stand as Jesus Christ and, you know, Savior over their life, a judge over their life, and say, you're not good. You don't love God. You're not going to heaven. You're not right. But in order to help you, assist you, pray for you, come alongside you. That whole context there in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul institutes what we call church discipline. And the purpose of the discipline in the church was to lead them and back into a repentant relationship with God. It wasn't to condemn him to hell. It was to save him from hell. So what we're talking about here is not God-honoring, healthy evaluation of another believer where you say, look, man, you should not be in a relationship with that person that is not your spouse. Look, man, your entire life is overrun with greed. Have you ever noticed that all you do is buy new stuff and you are in no way generous with God? That's healthy evaluation of going to another believer and saying, I love you so much, I must tell you this. But I'm not standing over you and condemning you. I'm not standing over you as if I'm better than you. I'm taking this huge log out of my eye so I can come to you and say, brother, you don't even know you got the speck. You don't even see it, but I see it. I gotta help you. Let me tell you why I think I can help you because I had to do that once. I just did that last week. It's huge. Because when we move into the stage of judging, we are one step away from seeing the fruit. I love this little quote in that same article I told you about. Heart of Conflict says this. If we are not careful, these expectations will become conditions and standards that we use to judge others. Instead of giving people room for independence, disagreement, or failure, we rigidly impose our expectations on them. In effect, we expect them to give allegiance to our idols. When they refuse to do so, we condemn them in our hearts with our words, and our conflicts with them take on a heightened intensity. And then here's what happens. We get to this last phase, and we start to punish them. And we feel totally justified in doing it, don't we? This is where, and I've had this happen before, men will sit in my office and confess to me some sort of struggle or another. Yeah, I went out and bought that, but she... Yeah, I went on my phone and I looked at that. However, she... Well, if he would have, then I wouldn't have needed to, so... And what we start to do in that moment is we start to punish. 
the other person for the sawdust in their eye, ignoring the tree growing out of our own. And we start to extract on them what ultimately is in the hands of the Lord. And when this happens, marriages die. There's a couple, the Egriches, they wrote a book called Love and Respect, fantastic book on marriage, highly recommend it. And I've preached on this before. But basically what they say in that book, here's the summary of the whole book. I'll save you 20 bucks or whatever. But here's the summary of the whole book. You should still get it. Every woman is looking for love from her husband, and every husband is looking for respect from his wife. And they take it right out of Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 25. And the whole point they say here is when he doesn't give love, she doesn't give respect. And they call it the crazy cycle. So he doesn't give love, so she doesn't respect, so he doesn't love, so she doesn't respect. And he said, the only way, the only way this is ever going to stop is for one of you to jump off the crazy train, to stop the crazy cycle and say, you know what, even if they don't love, I'll respect. Even if they don't respect, I'll love. I'm going to do what's right before God because it's right before God. But when we stay stuck in that crazy cycle, look, you can take that same analogy, take it out of marriage, apply it to your friendships, apply it to your boss, apply it to your kids, apply it to your parents. We take that same concept and we pull it out and we stick it in. What happens is, because you didn't, I'm gonna. And then what happens is, I feel totally justified. And many times, many times as believers who've been reading our Bibles, reading devotionals, listening to sermons, we got verses to back us up. Well, I'm just standing on God's word. I got a really... My goodness, I just thought of this. I might have to repent to my wife. I shouldn't tell this story. I'm not going to because I don't have her permission. That's no good. I hate when the Holy Spirit convicts me, especially in the moment. Anyway, I had one of these happen over vacation, and I'm just sitting here realizing I felt totally justified. I had a verse back. I even told God I had a verse back me up. God, because of this verse, I'm right. So you got a convictor. <laughs> Man, that's no fun. I'm going to have to see my wife after the service and hug her and say, I love you. I'm so messed up. Here's what James says, chapter 1, verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The ultimate result of not digging out this sick weed in your heart, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill your walk with God. It's going to kill your walk with your spouse. It's going to kill your walk with your kids. It's going to kill your walk with your life group. Great quote again, same article. As you search your heart for these idols, these desires, you will often encounter multiple layers of concealment, disguise, and justification. One of the most subtle Cloaking devices is to argue that we want only what God himself commands. Anybody else feeling convicted yet? So let's talk about what to do. I've got a few minutes left. I don't want to leave you with theory. I want to leave you with help. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 says this. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Let's just stop there for a second. I don't know about anybody else, but have you ever been out in the yard and, and working really hard? Uh, one of my favorite tools is the reciprocating saw, the sawzall, depending on what you want to call it. Man, that thing vibrates the snot out of you. 
And so you'll be using that thing and like, like everything's just shaking. And I don't, you know, I do a lot of typing and writing and talking to people. I don't do a lot of physical labor as much as I used to. I mean, my hands will just get tired after a while. I've kind of like, you know, stretch out my hands, especially if I have arthritis, you know, like, okay, let's get back to it. That's kind of what I was talking about. You ever been working out? You ever been doing pull-ups? You know, you're doing so many pull-ups. <laughs> you're like, yeah. anyway, you're doing pull-ups and your hands get tired. You got to stop, shake it out and get back up there and get on it again. That's what it's saying. Sometimes you get so worn out. Sometimes you're just so, whatever it is, we're going to get to this in a moment, bitter, angry, unforgiving, frustrated, and you've got to stop, shake it off, and get back in there. Sometimes your knees just get worn out from the journey, don't they? And you're ready to quit. You know, your knees get bad, what happens? You stop walking. In the book of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who wrote the book. In the book of Hebrews, what's happening in the church is it's gotten so bad that people are literally walking away from God. Some of them are walking away from God. They're just walking away from the church. They're literally withdrawing from the church. They're like, you know what? I'll still believe in God. I just don't need the church. Do you know you will not find that that sentiment supported anywhere in Scripture? The whole idea that you could be a Christian apart from the church is a lie from Satan. I got an email last night from a friend from my childhood, and he said this, I'm done with the church, and this sermon, even though I did not write it before, I I wrote it before I read his email, it's him to a T, and I love him, and I'm praying for God to give me wisdom to figure out how in the world am I going to help him. He's blaming everybody else for his life. He's blaming everybody else for his problems, and now he's walking away. He said, I haven't given up on God, but I'm done with the church, and you've got to strengthen your weak knees. Steph Curry, two-time MVP, recent loser in the national championship game. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I read a great article about Steph that said uh, he had really bad knees, and a few years ago he met a trainer who taught him that the way he was going to get stronger knees was to build up his ankles and his calves, his hamstrings, his quads, all the muscles around there that really helped carry the load and have helped to make him as great as he is today. And I say that because a lot of times what we need to do is realize there are other areas of our heart and our lives that we need to strengthen. You need to be digging into God's word. You need to be in community with other people. You need to be listening to great preaching and engaging in great worship. You need to be receiving the mercies of God that are new every single morning. That's how we strengthen these weak knees. But look at what's next, because we're starting to transition here into some other thoughts. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. The whole idea here is if you've got bad knees and you're walking on a path that's uneven, it's got roots and disjointed dirt everywhere, you're going to be more likely to stumble. So now, now what we're being called for by the writer of Hebrews is to create a plan. If you keep doing what you always did, you'll keep getting what you always got. And I realize that's terrible English, but it's a quote from my last pastor who was here two weeks ago. You keep doing this the way you've been doing it. If you're sitting here right now, you've got major struggles in your marriage and your life somewhere. You want to keep ending up at the same destination. Why don't you just keep going down the same path? But if it's not working, would you consider doing something different? And I don't mean getting angrier. I don't mean judging more or punishing more. In fact, I think it's time to stop that. I think it's time to get on your face, on your knees before a holy God and say, God, reveal to me my sin. Give me a heart like you. Help me to stop blaming the other person. Help me to take responsibility for what is mine. And God, give me the grace and the strength to walk this path. The next verse, verse 14. So work at living in peace with everyone. 
and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. It's not an accident that the writer of Hebrews combines those two thoughts together, peace with everyone and a holy life. The word peace in the Bible is the word shalom, and it has to do with the whole body, state of mind, relationships, right with God, right with others, everything about you is at peace. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to bring. But you cannot be right with everybody else and not right with God. So it's why these two things must go together. You must be living a life that honors God in order to have the peace that you're looking for and can't find. And so some of you, part of the problem is an evil desire, not a good desire. It's an evil desire in your heart. You long for something that's not in God's will, and you can't find peace. You're finding momentary pleasure, momentary happiness, but it is ruining you, and you don't realize it, but maybe the Holy Spirit is starting to show it to you. And if we get honest for a minute, it's time to cut that thing out deep at the root. We're almost done. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. I'm going to read the next one too because they go together. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. I'm not an expert gardener, so if I'm wrong, somebody please correct me so I'll quit saying the wrong thing. My understanding is if there's a bitter root in a garden, it'll actually make everything else taste a little bitter. And that's what a bitter root can do. And so part of what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's letting you know, look, watch out for each other. The, the words that are used here in the Greek is actually the word, that same root word for the word bishop. That's where we get the word overseer. It's where we get the word shepherd or elder. It's not a text that's calling the leadership of the church to do this for everybody. It's actually a text that's using the same language to talk about the entire church. And so now what we have is, yes, you need to be with God. You need to repent of your sin. You need to get right with God. But now the writer of Hebrews is calling on the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. And so if you see somebody who's stumbling with weak knees, you see somebody who's about to fall because their grip is getting worn out. He's calling you and he's saying, go and look out for each other. Love each other enough to come alongside each other, to hold each other up to help each other walk this path if you see bitterness and unforgiveness growing in somebody's heart go to them that's the evaluation judging that's not the i'm condemning you judging go to them and say i love you too much this has to stop you got to take a different path you're ruining your life you're ruining the church you're ruining your life group you're ruining your marriage stop for the love of god stop and then i love this i thought about skipping it but i really 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 I want to talk about it. It's a whole sermon in itself, and I'm going to do it in a minute, which is going to make it hard to cover it well. Look at these last couple of verses. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. He traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected, and it was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. The story, there's these twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, in the Old Testament. And J- or Esau, because he was supposed to be the older brother, was supposed to receive the inheritance and the blessing. And he went out hunting one day in order to make a meal for his father as his father was dying. And he came back famished, exhausted. His brother Jacob tricked him, deceived him. He made this wonderful smelling meal. When Esau came in, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, give me some of that soup. Give me some of that meal. He said, I'll give you some, but you give me the birthright. And Esau, because of a desire in his heart, he led a fleshly desire. Is it a good desire to be hungry? Well, of course. There's nothing wrong with being hungry and getting food. 
but he let a good desire take away the greatest blessing he could have ever had. Do you see the power of that analogy? He loved his body and his life and this world so much, he traded the blessing of Almighty God through his dad for a meal. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, be careful that nobody among you ends up like him. Because later when he realized what he did, he wept. But it was too late. I don't want that for you. I don't want there to ever be a moment where you say, why didn't I deal with this then? Matt tried to warn me. God tried to warn me. The Word tried to warn me, and I just wouldn't listen. I was too afraid of the outcome. Brother, sister, hear me on this. Please do it today. I want to pray over you. And when I'm done praying, we're going to go into communion time. It is the perfect time. Because communion is us connecting with God so we can connect with others. If you need to talk to God, would you talk to him? If you need to talk to somebody else, this might be a good time, and I would recommend this, maybe not to take communion and go grab that other person if they're in the room and say, can we talk? Or at least lean over and say, can we talk as soon as this is over? Let me pray over you. Father God in heaven, oh God, please help us not to be Esau. Please help us to be like Jesus. God, I pray that we would see our sin for what it really is and name it for what it really is. I pray, God, we would agree with you where our sin has ruined us and owned us. God, even if they're good things and become ultimate things, God, would you help us? Help us to see it and acknowledge it and own it and deal with it. God, I just pray right now. There are men and women in this room and this message is hitting them in all kinds of different ways. Some are struggling because the person they have conflict with is maybe passed away or is completely removed from them, and God, they're struggling because there's, it feels like there's no hope for reconciliation. And God, you are the God of everything. You can raise dead things to life. And Scott, I just pray right now, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, raise us to life. Fix our hearts, fix our lives. God, that we might be focused on you and deal with what's really going on in our heart that we might produce great fruit, not bitter fruit for you. And God, as we do that, would you meet us in this place and wash us in your grace, wash us in your mercy, that God, as we take this bread and take this juice, we accept again, we accept again your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.